before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Back after uh, something of an enforced hiatus, as we've had some technical issues for the last several weeks, which have precluded recording any podcasts. However, those issues sorted out, I will be back with a vengeance um, and bringing you this first in a series of three podcasts uh, over the next week, hopefully, if none of my guests let me down, uh, which is unlikely because they're all fine people. Um, And I begin with Michael Howell from Cross Border Capital. Michael is uh, a real sage when it comes to liquidity, which is, as many of you know already, one of the driving forces of the markets. And having seen and watched liquidity kind of turn, not just in real terms, but certainly in the mind's eye and the understanding of many uh, market participants, I was keen to have a chat with Michael and, and get some insight into what's really happening behind the scenes. And I think you'll discover in the next hour, there's an awful lot to think about um, when it comes to liquidity. And there is nobody better in the world than Michael to have that conversation with. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Howell of Cross Border Capital. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. So good to have a chance to talk to you again in 2023. Great, Grant. Pleased to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, look, it's always a pleasure to have you back and talk to you. And, and it's funny, you know, since the last time we spoke, um, you know, we had a conversation about liquidity. God, it must be about a year ago now, I think. And um, in that time, it's amazing how important the idea of liquidity and the understanding of it has become with everybody. So what I'd love to do to kick things off is just to talk about liquidity as a construct and, and the way thinking around it has changed, because you've kind of sat in the middle focusing so acutely on it for such a long time now, and you've kind of seen the world around you ebb and flow in terms of its either understanding and appreciation of liquidity or its reliance upon it or its use of it to predict things or to trade things. So, so let's talk about that kind of the journey of liquidity in the investor's mind, and then we'll, then we'll start talking about uh, its applications in the markets today. Okay, so first of all, what do we mean by liquidity? People talk uh, about it very frequently, as you rightly say, but let's we've got to pin it down and let's uh, really see what uh, what liquidity is, what's behind liquidity. We basically start with, uh, if you'd like, a twin definition. One is to separate liquidity into funding liquidity and also into market liquidity. Now, market liquidity is what most people understand, or most traders or investors understand by liquidity, and that effectively refers to market depth, um, bid ask spreads, the size of bid ask spreads. In other words, can you transact in markets in size very close to current prices? So that's market liquidity. But that's effectively a derivative of the other type of liquidity, which is funding liquidity. And that is, is there enough liquidity in the system to actually be able to facilitate transactions? Okay. And that's the bit that we really focus on. So we look at market liquidity, if you like, as a cross check, but we're essentially trying to understand what funding liquidity is. Now, funding liquidity represents the flow of cash and credit through global financial markets. Okay, uh, That's probably the simplest definition. Another way to think about that, which I think is increasingly relevant in a world where there's lots of debt, is to try and think of it more in terms of balance sheet capacity. And the reason that we say that is that contrary to what textbooks tell you, and textbooks say that essentially financial markets are a a new, if you like, a way of raising new capital. In contrast to that, today, financial markets are more about refinancing existing debts. So it's not raising new money for capital spending, where interest rates are the most important factor. So you look at market interest rates as your cost of capital, right? And that's what drives the economic system. No longer is that true. I mean, nobody's really doing a lot of capex in the West. Most of it, as we know, is being done in China or in Asia. So it's the refinancing angle which is critical, and we've got you know huge a huge huge part of debt as you and I know too well, which has got to be refinanced. 
And it's that refinancing where liquidity becomes absolutely critical. And the best way to think of liquidity in that context is it's the capacity of capital, in other words, a measure of balance sheet capacity, rather than the cost of capital. Now, to put to give you one very concrete example, if you're thinking of somebody who's a homeowner and their mortgage is coming up uh, to be repaid and they can't repay it, so they've got to roll it. Now, if you want to get the roll, it's not the interest rate that you're going to pay that really is the critical thing. It's actually getting the role. It's finding a bank yeah. that will refinance your mortgage because if that doesn't happen, you're homeless. So if you're thinking about debt and refinancing, this is really the critical concept today. So liquidity in our modern world is crucial for policymakers to think about in that refinancing context. And with a huge debt pile saddled, saddling the world economy, refinancing is key. Now, we did some estimates where we looked at the amount of debt in the world economy, which is well over $300 trillion. It has an average life of about five years, which means you've got to refinance about $65 trillion of debt every year. Now, that means that if you're refinancing that amount, then um, the number of transactions in financial markets dedicated to refinancing outstrip new financings about six to seven to one, somewhere between six and seven to one. So financial markets today are absolutely dedicated to refinancing. And that's why understanding liquidity is so critical. And that's why academics and central bankers cannot dismiss uh, liquidity as being unimportant. You cannot keep defaulting back to interest rates and saying interest rates are the key thing to watch. You've got to look at liquidity. Yes, this is so interesting because you know what that effectively means is that this need for refinancing ultimately has to crowd out new debt. You know, because it, as you say, it's it's vital that you roll this debt over. And, and we've all seen the stats on the number of zombie companies in the S and P five hundred, etc. And if it dwarfs the new debt creation by seven to one, that's a huge problem because it's it's not as though you can withdraw liquidity if you're a central bank at this point. You have to keep markets liquid. So as you've watched interest rates go from you know zero effectively to let's call it four and a half five percent, many people, myself included didn't think we had a prayer of getting to that point without something breaking. We're there, and all the talk out of the Fed is that, you know, we're going to be higher for longer, we're going to stop, but we're going to keep rates up here. What does that do to liquidity? Because obviously the, the cost of uh, carry of this debt now is massively higher. You've got an enormous need for companies to refinance, as you said, so that that's going to suck out a lot of that liquidity. How do those two sides come together and form a marketplace? What happens to new capital required and existing debt that needs to be rolled over, but the rates are punitive? Yeah, I think you've 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 nailed it. I mean, it, essentially, what this debt problem is doing is crowding out the potential for new capital. But if you think about uh, something we're all very familiar with, which is debt to GDP ratios uh, for different economies, what we know is they're on upward trend. Uh, it's very, very difficult to contain these things. And you know whether it's the fact that uh, the growth in the world economy is sluggish, so the GDP uh, factor is slow, or it's the fact that debt accumulates because either interest payments are rolled up the whole time. So in other words, you can't, uh, you simply can't afford the interest bill, so you borrow more debt to pay the interest bill, which we know is happening more and more, uh, and even happening to to governments. Let's be clear. So what you've got is an escalating debt to GDP ratio. Um, and that's going to get worse if interest rates go up more, and if GDP growth slows further, that becomes you know an unsustainable situation. But if I'm correct in saying that you need liquidity to refinance debt, the ratio between liquidity and debt must remain pretty constant. Okay, for to, to facilitate that, so for every extra dollar of debt, you need X extra dollars of liquidity. What that means is the liquidity to GDP ratio is equally going up as fast as the debt GDP ratio. Now, what we know is that that liquidity spills out into asset markets or potentially actually also could spill out into the real economy and fuel high street inflation. But ultimately, what our experience of the last 20 years is that most of that liquidity goes back into asset markets. So effectively, what you've got is a kind of paradox here is that the more you the more debt you take on, the more you're inflating asset markets at the same time. But it's becoming a, a sort of a more wobbly and wobbly situation. 
And one of the things that, you know, we often say, and in actual fact, it was a sort of centerpiece of a book I wrote uh, three or four years ago called Capital Wars. Uh, the theme of that book was to say, as the financial world gets bigger, it becomes more and more volatile. And that's effectively what we're seeing. Most of the financial crises that we've witnessed, witnessed in the last 20 years have been refinancing crises. Yeah. And those refinancing crises often spill over into the real economies as well. So in actual fact, it's the financial markets that are increasingly driving real economies and not vice versa. Well, let's talk a little bit about the way liquidity, in air quotes, finds its way into the system. Because I think everybody's heard people talking about the Fed injecting liquidity, you know, through the various open market operations and stuff. But talk a little bit, if you can, for people that don't quite understand how the Fed and the other central banks add liquidity, you know, funding liquidity to markets and where the weak points in that might be in the environment that we're talking about now. Okay, let me step back. There's principally two main conduits, if you like, of liquidity getting into the system. One is that the central banks will essentially expand their balance sheets. So they're giving uh, or making available potentially more funding or more reserves uh, into financial markets. And that makes it easier for credit providers to essentially supply liquidity uh, more broadly within the financial system. Equally, what you could find is that uh, those credit providers, without necessarily having the impetus of central banks, through financial innovation or maybe even taking greater risks, could themselves expand credit. Okay, and it's those two, if you like, those two moving parts that are really the things to understand. Now, what maybe has changed in the course of, well, maybe the last ten years, to take one uh, one period as an example, is that. Prior to the global financial crisis, it was the innovation and the deregulation aspect, not the central banks, that were really driving the liquidity boom or bubble. Okay, And in actual fact, to be truthful, the central banks, notably the Federal Reserve, lost control of the, of the dollar credit system. And what they've done in the intervening period, particularly after in the wake of the global financial crisis, is muscle back in and actually take control of that whole credit creation process again. So it's actually increasingly difficult for credit providers to provide credit, uh, or certainly in conventional ways. Now, what you're seeing is uh, is the growth of new types of finance, financing, uh, new types of credit or credit providers that are coming in. So we've seen the rise of the repo uh, in markets historically. Yep. Uh, a lot of credit is now coming through FX swaps, for example. Uh, these are ways of actually generating more liquidity within the system. Um, and what we know is as well that it can come internationally through cross-border flows. And evidence of these particular new areas are ways in which the – or evidence by the ways in which the Federal Reserve uh, itself is actually increasing its toolkit to try and, uh, if you like, control or even support some of these new areas. So, for example, uh, swap lines that are given by the Federal Reserve to other central banks – are becoming more and more important. Uh, you know, equally things like the standing repo facility uh, is you know another way of uh, of making sure that liquidity is in the system when it's needed. But you know, the problem the problem that we're getting into, which you know, I, I think you'll sort of see where this is going in a moment. But the problem we're getting into is that what you're getting is the shadow banking uh, area is becoming bigger and bigger and probably more complex is a better way of putting it. It's becoming more complex. There are more dark areas that nobody really truthfully understands. And so it's much more difficult for a regulator's perspective to actually try and manage the system properly. And ultimately, when push comes to shove, the real question is, is the Federal Reserve big enough or swift enough or smart enough to actually bail out areas of the market uh, that have credit problems? Now, the answer probably is not, okay? I mean, or let's say yeah. from a risk point of view, you've got to say probably not. And what's happening is the Federal Reserve is having to go back a step and try and control the bond markets instead. And the reason for that is that a lot of our liquidity that's being created now is essentially collateralized uh, borrowings. And those collateralized borrowings depend on the value and the amount of collateral in the system. And that collateral, let's say the high quality part of that collateral, are things like U.S. Treasuries or German bunds. Okay, 
Now, if you get dislocations in that market, so for example, if the US Treasury yield suddenly jumped or you got increased volatility in the bond markets, what you'd see is a very significant liquidity crunch. And the central banks increasingly are going to have to manage the stability of the bond markets to make sure that liquidity is preserved. So essentially what you've got now is a situation where uh, it's like a well, I draw the analogy of a circus where you've got a juggler with lots of sticks and whirring plates and they've got to try and keep these things spinning the whole time. So it's an unenviable task uh, and one hopes the Federal Reserve has you know, got a grip of it. Certainly they're in far, far better control than they were uh, you know, at the time of the GFC. Um, I yeah. think they've learned on the job. But we know that innovation in the financial sector is rapid. Well, let's stay on that topic for a second, because, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about this, and it's so fascinating, but I'm getting this image of, you know, you've created this organism in terms of the financial system that needs liquidity like oxygen, and it's it needs more and more oxygen to keep going. But when the central banks decide, okay, we need to regain control of this because we've allowed it through obviously all the incentives we provided of, of lower for longer and we're not going to raise rates for two years and zero cost of capital and negative rates and all these incentives they've given the financial industry to increase the amount of credit it extends. As soon as they try and gain control of it again, you've got this organism that needs oxygen from anywhere it can. And you know that leads to this rise in the shadow banking system. How does that resolve itself? Because it feels as though what you're going to end up with is an increasing desire for control, you know, a need for control, not even a desire. The, 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 the central banks need to gain control of this again. But by doing so, the only way that the system can stay alive in its current form for as long as it possibly can is to find increasingly risky ways to either hide the liquidity that's being provided from the central banks or create structures that are inherently unsound, particularly in a rising interest rate environment. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. So, you know, if you go back and look at the history of financial systems over the very long term, I'm talking here, you know, hundreds of years, essentially what the financial system does is it basically uh, transforms uh, maturity risk into credit risk. And that's really what right. it's doing the whole time. And what the regulators are trying to do is to stop credit risk increasing because they know at the end of the day they're going to have to bail out the system by uh, by uh, essentially cushioning that credit risk at some stage. Now, my as you know, I used to work at Salomon Brothers, uh, the US investment bank, and my boss, Henry Kaufman, always used to say, the problem with the system and the problem with the Federal Reserve is they're always a step behind market innovation. Right. And that's the reality. I mean, that by definition, that's true. Uh, you know, one always thinks about the efficiency of the industrial sector, the te- the growth of technology, but it's the financial sector, which, are, if you like, the big innovators. And it's it, these things are hugely complex, as we know. And the question is, have the regulators really got a grip of that? And even if they're a, one step or half a step behind, it can be disastrous. Now, I think the only thing they can therefore do uh, without sort of curtailing credit growth or credit expansion in the future is to basically get control of the bond markets. And that's what they need to do. So, you know, something that I know you've spoken about, we've spoken about many times, is to start looking at Japan and realizing that Japan is the canary in the coal mine here. And everything that we've seen in Japan, whether it's aging demographics, whether it's disinflation, deflation, QE, negative interest rates, yield curve control, it's coming to a high street near you soon. So yield curve control in some form has got to come because central banks cannot allow uh, bond volatility uh, to increase or yields to go up. Now, evidence that, look at what happened in the British gilt market uh, in September of last year. Okay, Now, the Bank of England switched overnight from a QT policy to a QE policy. They, They completely turned. And that is really telling you that the most important thing for central banks to do is not to nail inflation or to create employment, is to maintain the integrity of the sovereign debt markets. And that's their primary role. That's why they were invented in the first place, For you know, as we know. The, the inflation control mantle is something that they developed very recently. Now, in that case, let's just say, well, okay, the Bank of England were, at the end of the day, quite successful in bringing yields back down on the in the British gilt market to more normal levels. But had that event occurred in the US Treasury market, we'd now all be toast. 
I mean, that's how critical this is. So yeah. losing control of the sovereign debt markets is absolutely critical. So watch this space. Now, I would argue, and one of the things that uh, you know we've been saying in our research across border is to say, look, since September, that was a wake-up call for central bankers worldwide. We monitor 90 central banks worldwide, and we would say, looking at the data, October was an inflection point globally in terms of the liquidity cycle. I'm not saying that liquidity is picking up dramatically, but there's been an inflection. And central banks have basically stopped their QT uh, policies. Generally, they paused them or started to back off them. And evidence that, again, look at the Federal Reserve. One of the things the Federal Reserve is doing, as we know, is so-called QT, quantitative tightening. Now, they're becoming, let's say, a lot more subtle about how they're defining that now. And they're basically pinning it down to letting uh, treasuries roll off the balance sheet, okay, right. Federal Reserve. Treasury matures, and essentially it, it, uh, it, it struck off the balance sheet. Now, that's not necessarily how a lot of people would have thought about QT originally. And they've said, actually, it's reducing the amount of liquidity that the Federal Reserve injects into the system. And as the Federal Reserve reduces its liquidity injections, so bank reserves and money in the money markets, effectively the same thing, starts to shrink pari pursue with that reduction in liquidity injections. Now, what the Federal Reserve has done pretty much since September is to flatline those liquidity injections. So bank reserves have in the US have been uh, moving sideways at about $3 trillion pretty much since that point. Okay. Now, why is that important? The reason that's important is that prior to the uh, the September events, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which tends to wait, which is in control of open market operations, was estimating that the amount of the minimum amount of reserves that the US banking system needed to function was 1.9 trillion. So at 3 trillion plus, we've got a lot of headroom. However, our estimates, completely different, independent of that, would say that number is nearer 2.6, 2.7 trillion, much higher. And then we get in September a Brookings conference in the US where some leading academics uh, were basically saying that the figure today is nearer um, $2.5 trillion, not the 1.9, not our 2.6, but close to it, but 2.5. So, you know, that's that's the number to think about. Now, why is that critical? The reason that's critical is that what you've uh, what you've got, and for example, if you want to reference it, uh, it's academics like Jonathan Wright uh, who've actually publicly came out and, and said these numbers. Now, if you hold that thought and say, well, okay, we're at three trillion now, two point five, still a cushion, but what we know is we're going into the debt ceiling problems, and that would mean that one of the items that's on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. This is getting a bit wonkish, but let me let me continue for a second. One of the items on the balance sheet is the Treasury General account. The Treasury General account is the Treasury's account. It holds, in other words, his bank account. It holds at the Federal Reserve. And if you've got an inability to issue debt, and you've got simultaneously this time of year a lot of tax revenues coming in, that account is going to be increasingly volatile. And therefore, you need an even bigger amount of headroom to make sure that you don't hit the 2.5 trillion threshold or 2.6 or whatever the number is that we're citing. And actually, if you look at the data since September, taking one standard deviation off US bank reserves, it's exactly touching that 2.5 trillion threshold. So in other words, it looks as if, uh, you know, as they say, if it's yellow and quacks, it's a duck. So it looks as if there's some deliberate targeting to make sure that U.S. bank reserves don't fall below this current level, uh, i.e. circa $3 trillion. And that's what we've had, the history of the last uh, 12 you know, weeks plus, uh, 15 weeks probably now, is that what you've got is bank reserves flatlining around that level. So in other words, what does it mean? It means that QT is effectively dead in the U.S. system. Well, let me ask you two questions relate, related to that. Um, firstly, I'm curious as to the difference between that FRBNY uh, 1.9 trillion and Brookings 2.5, 2.6. I'm curious as to where the difference lies 
And secondly, let's talk about what those bank reserves falling below that limit, what that portends. Okay, the what it portends is that if there's insufficient liquidity in the money markets, what you what you could get is uh, a refinancing crisis, as I alluded to. You'd get increased uh, volatility uh, in the markets, and increased volatility would further reduce liquidity. And the problem you've got here is the whole system is very, very pro-cyclical now because it's effectively more and more dependent on capital markets. So as you get this volatility, repo volumes would shrink because margin requirements to repo a bond or a security would go up, and it would be much more difficult to do that. And it may be that uh, those people that offer uh, repoing facilities would, would withdraw the securities. So essentially, the system would start to become more illiquid, more volatile, consequently more illiquid, and you get this cascade downwards. So in other words, this is an instance where maybe that cascade downwards, as I tried to allude earlier on, is too big now for the Federal Reserve to throw liquidity back at it. And what they need to do is to go further up the curve and actually try and manage the Treasury market itself. And maybe that's what they do. They may have better control over that. Now, what they can do is that they can operate in the treasury market themselves. They could operate with the treasury. Uh, they could uh, force or encourage financial institutions to hold more treasuries, etc. They could get friendly central banks overseas to buy treasuries. All these sorts of elements could come in. But that is loosely, or that's the gray area we're getting into. This is so-called yield curve control. And this is what we're this is what we're talking about. And the problem is that we've created a monster here with the financial sector. You know, it's becoming more and more complex. And you know, with financial innovation, there's there's, there's no going back. So that's that's point number one. I didn't answer the question yeah. about the 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 two point five two point six. I don't know how Jonathan yeah. Wright comes up with his figures of two point five, uh, but it may be in a similar fashion to the way we do it. What we've done is we've looked back at periods of market volatility in the bond markets and tried to associate that with different reserve levels or different amounts of money in the money markets, and that's how we conclude that two point five is approximately or two point six is the sort of figure that looks to be a reasonable one. You start to get illiquidity problems uh, around that around those thresholds. Now, um, to go back to the to the sort of point about September and the British gilt market, if you then look at liquidity, uh, market liquidity here, so the other the other side of funding liquidity, market liquidity, since the end of September in the US Treasury market, on both our data and looking at similar data that Bloomberg calculate for Treasury market depth, you've seen that index or both indexes bottom around the end of September and move up sharply northward since. So the liquidity has been restored by these actions since September. So problem has gone away. And what's more, the volume of repo lending has started to accelerate again. So you're getting a reliquification of the system, uh, you know, courtesy of, I would say, of what the Federal Reserve has been doing. So the Federal Reserve has been alert to this here. They've done a, they've, I think they've done a successful job. Um, the, you know, the issue is always what if and what could happen next. Uh, and this is, you know, that that's the risk. These things need to be looked at very closely, and hence liquidity is is, viable, is is important. And if you want to scale that increase in market liquidity, our index, uh, which ranges between zero and one hundred, at the end of September, a drop to ten. Okay, uh, normally averages fifty, a drop to ten. It's now about fifty again, so it's revived back to normal levels. Well, so if we think about that for a minute. The problem that we've had for you know, over a decade now, has consistently been a lack of liquidity, less liquidity than the market needed. And, and that's always seemed like a very simple problem to solve. You know, liquidity in the, the, the system as it's currently designed is actually pretty straightforward to inject into the system. Having too much liquidity generally hasn't been a problem, certainly not a clear and present danger. It, it kind of manifests itself every now and again, and it really only shows up when you get to this period that we've entered in the last year or so where we need to increase the cost of capital, that's when this, you know, a surfeit of liquidity becomes a problem. So if we've reached kind of the age of coercion, if you like, whether the Federal Reserve is going to have to control the yield curve, whether it's by leaning on, as you say, friendly central banks to buy 
treasuries or whether it's to you know mandate pension funds to hold a certain amount of treasuries, some way or some shape or form they need to mandate increased consumption of these assets. What's the way out of that? Because it feels like you're going to do all these things to stave off a crisis. By doing so, you're going to add more kindling to the base of the fire in terms of liquidity. Is this something that it's just going to get bigger and bigger and more volatile, but never actually be a problem? What is it that could finally tip this over the end? Because I always thought once we get to a period where interest rates need to go up considerably, and I never thought, as I said, we'd get to 5% before something broke. Is that the one thing now that could ultimately tip this constant resupplying of liquidity to the system? Is there an interest rate level somewhere that might finally mean that that game doesn't work anymore? Yes, there could well be, but it's probably it's probably a lot higher than this. I mean, I think it's not just the level of interest rates, it's essentially bond volatility. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, we, we've we spent, um, uh, I mean, I'm saying collectively, we, um, in terms of market uh, participants, have been looking at things like the VIX for a long time as they gauge a risk. Yeah. Actually, the thing to look at is bond volatility, the move yeah. index. Yeah. Uh, that's what we've got to be looking at more, more seriously, because that's, that will be, uh, I think, a pretty good predictor of whether the system breaks down or not, because you need to cap or significantly reduce bond market volatility. Thankfully, it's going down. And if you look at you know the response of Wall Street um, to that drop in bond volatility, it's been pretty much one for one. So that's sort of you know gratifying in that sense. So I think that um, you know effectively um, central banks or policymakers are sort of kicking the can down the road here. Okay, uh, I mean, that, can they keep doing that? I think for a certain amount of time, yes, they can. Um, I think where you see the problems, uh, where you'll see the problems first is not necessarily in the US sovereign debt market, but it's in some of the fringe sovereign debt markets who may have got uh, bigger problems than the US. And, you know, I keep saying that the US has problems, but the US is probably the cleanest shirt in the laundry here. Others have got bigger, far, 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 far bigger problems. As we know, Europe is not in a particularly comfortable situation generally. And you know, to give you maybe a concrete example here is if you go back to the uh, to the the British example um, in September, the the problems in the in the gilt market, uh, the British sovereign debt market, were caused when the new incoming prime minister had a pro growth agenda and effectively launched a budget where there were uh, tax giveaways. Now, if you do the arithmetic. Uh, for the for the UK budget, at least when I do the arithmetic, what I found was that if you take from total tax revenue in the UK mandatory spending, so that's things like social security, education, health, whatever spending in the UK, defence, etc., you're left with a surplus. And the question is, how many times does that surplus cover the interest bill on the debt? And the answer in the UK before the budget was 1.8 times. After the budget, the figure was, or prospective budget, was 1.2 times. But that was enough to cause the markets to, to be upset. Where is that number, that ratio now in the US? The answer is 0.8. So the US is actually borrowing to pay interest. Okay, Where does that figure get to on Congressional Budget Office estimates in the next five years? Answer 0.3. So what you can see here is there is a problem building. And you know one of the things that we've maintained over the last few months is to say, look, okay, inflation we know is a nagging problem. And inflation may go away, it may come back, it may be you know there in the medium term. But the real problem is the fiscal arithmetic. Those are the numbers that just don't add up at all, because mandatory spending is going to skyrocket in the next few years because of aging demographics. Yeah. And you're working because of the aging demographics, working age population shrinks, and that's your tax base. And that's already seriously overtaxed. So, you know, the problem is, is that we've got to find new mechanisms of funding, or we lean back on the central banks to start doing QE again. And I think it's, you know, some combination of the two. Now, if you're living in a world where foreign investors are now beginning a little bit, uh, you know, maybe more choosy about which debt markets they invest in, uh, I'm thinking here of uh, China, potentially Japan, maybe the Saudis, whatever, then you've got some issues that one you've, you've got to start thinking about. And, you know, if I was the Treasury Secretary, I'd be looking, I would have a blank sheet of paper now and just be writing down who's going to be buying US debt 
uh, in the next five years? Is it domestic institutions? Is it the Federal Reserve? Is it Japan? Is it Saudis? Whatever. And these are very interesting questions, particularly in a world where we know that China is trying to challenge the hegemony of the US dollar or the US dollar system in the medium term. But this, these, these problems are somewhat intractable, and we've known that these numbers don't work for, for some considerable time. And we all, we've all looked at the off-balance sheet liabilities of the United States and you know, scratched our heads at you know, the, the, the number that ranges anywhere from $100 trillion to $200 trillion, depending on whose data you use. And it's reached that kind of law of large numbers point where people just, they don't want to think about it and they don't think there's any point thinking about it because the number's so big you can't really get your head around it. So you know, is there a point where this matters? And I look at Japan particularly because you know, we've all watched Japan, as you say, it's the canary in the coal mine, has been for the longest time and everyone's kind of been watching it as a barometer for what happens. And we saw market liquidity in the JGB market essentially dry up. Uh, there were days when the 10-year wouldn't yeah. trade at all, which is obviously the point of the curve where the, the Bank of Japan are, are controlling the, the yield. And that lack of liquidity actually worked in the Bank of Japan's favour. The fact that people didn't want to trade kept powder dry for them. Now there's a whiff of weakness in the air, you know, about faces by the Bank of Japan and, and it's being reflected in the currency. All the things that we knew would happen at some point, we just didn't know when. Now the rubber's kind of hitting the road and you can see the market now saying, okay, you're on one knee, you're bloodied. Now there's an opportunity here. What does it take in some of the bigger central banks? It's hard to think about, you know, the world's third largest economy as a smaller central bank, but that's kind of what it's become in people's minds. What does it take for, for some of these things to matter, these enormous intractable problems that the US and Europe and the UK all have? Well, I think it's, it's you know, that's that's the sort of the, the key question, Grant. And, yeah. you know, I would have said, looking at, um, you know, what Japan has been doing, they, they would have basically hit breaking point already. But we never would have thought the Bank of Japan could, uh, you know, escalate its bond buying in the, scale, in the way that it's done. Uh, and gotten away with it. I mean, the yen hasn't. I mean, apart from you know, obviously going back earlier earlier in uh, 2022, it was soft. But actually, recently uh, through December and January, the yen has actually been remarkably stable. Perhaps during a period where the Bank of Japan has really gone for it in terms of purchases of JGBs, but they seem to have done that. Now that might well tell us that uh, you know they're finding new tricks. Uh, to sort of manipulate the market or they're getting domestic institutions to come back and, you know, maybe they're flogging their treasuries and they're coming back and buying JGBs. Now, that, okay, cures the problem in Japan, but it's a little bit like squeezing a balloon that you've, you're, you're creating a problem somewhere else. And that probably tells us that if the Japanese are selling their treasuries and buying JGBs, Japanese institutions, then uh, you've got to find a new buyer for U.S. treasuries. Uh, and so the problem doesn't go doesn't go away. I mean, I, I mean, at the end of the day, what the what the issue is is we've got to get the debt burden down, and that's easier said than done. And the only way you can do that is by basically disincentivizing people to take debt. And the best way to do that is to create a higher level of interest rates. And you know, the problem we got into, as we've written about many times, is that you know the policies of let's say to name names. It's been Greenspan, Bernanke, and in the UK, George Osborne, which have been the culprits here, because George Osborne pursued a policy of austerity, which was, I think, foolish, because it put the burden of it, – it meant the burden of debt was, was really pushed onto the private sector. And then what you had was a policy in the US of very low interest rates by Greenspan and Bernanke, and that policy incentivized debt. Now, what they did and what the, the error came back to can originally be sourced to China, because when China was allowed into the WTO in 2001, the cost structure of China um, you know, meant that, or the low cost structure, meant that China exported deflation. Now, what central banks are very alert to is not so much deflation, but a a bigger problem called monetary deflation, because it was monetary deflation that basically wrecked the world economy in the 1930s. Now, what we actually got out of China was not monetary deflation, but cost deflation. Cost deflation is okay. You can accept cost deflation. But the important thing is not to muddle the two up. And the central bankers muddled the two up. So what they did is they basically reacted by slashing interest rates, thinking that we're in a monetary deflation. And consequently, what you got you incentivize people to take on more and more and more debt. 
And at the time, at the same time, they deregulated the financial system. So the elasticity of the financial system meant that more and more debt could be supplied. And hence, we're now at this problem. What they need to do is to do a Volcker and raise interest rates and basically to kill this, this debt appetite. Now, is Jay Powell a Volcker? I would say perhaps. But I think the main point is that he's not a Volcker this year. And what we've been arguing is that, you know, there will be some denouement or some attempt to, you know, uh, get this debt burden down. But 2023 is not the year you do that. And the reason for that is that I don't think it's in anyone's interest, be it Biden trying to run for the presidency or be it the fact there's a war in Europe. You don't want to create a big recession now this year. Uh, you know, create a little bit of inflation, manage the debt problem because you're inflating a bit of it away, but then tackle it in a few years time when you've got more ability perhaps to do that. But I mean, look, there's always an incentive to not tackle the debt problem. You, you, know, you don't have to look very hard or, or it's never really a stretch to find an incentive as to why we don't want to deal with this now. But interestingly, when we talk about this, and I hear you laying this case on the table, you realise that it reinforces the idea that as much as the private sector has layered on debt and become dependent upon debt at a company level to survive in many cases... And obviously, household debt has been through the roof in, in many, many countries. Households have taken on more debt than ever. It strikes me that the people most hooked on debt and most dependent upon it staying cheap and available for the longest time are governments. It's just that simple. And so one has to think that if you've got the establishment, for want of a less pejorative phrase, is the most dependent upon low interest rates and, and the ability to create more debt, and you've got central banks you know, whose independence is dubious at best and laughable at worst, perhaps. It feels as though the only way forward here at some point, and this is, I guess, brings us to the, the, the much-discussed pivot, is that ultimately there's only one way this ends, and that's with central banks caving and supplying governments with what they need to be able to borrow more money to stay in business. Absolutely. It's coming. We know that. The question is the timing. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. 100%. Um, and what, what you may get or what you will get, I think, is a situation rather like uh, the 1930s, where what we see is uh, significant volatility in currency markets. Right. That was the you know, that was one of the lessons of the 1930s. So the, the French franc was the strongest currency until it wasn't, and then it became the weakest currency in the world. Um, and, you know, you, you probably know the story or the history books sort of show that the French economy was sort of devastated because of the collapse in the franc at the end of the 1930s. And, you know, the the, the the sort of paradox or the shameful paradox is that a lot of the French middle classes actually welcomed the Germans in when they invaded because they actually thought they were going to get monetary discipline. This little man got something else, but anyway. Yeah, discipline of a different kind. So so let's, let's stay on this idea of the pivot because, as you say, it's coming. And it's been fascinating to watch, no matter how tough Powell and, and all the other talking heads on the FOMC are, no matter how hard they try to convince markets about how serious their inflation, as you pointed out earlier, that's what they need to do is try and lower this, this need to create more debt. The market from day one of this has just been saying, you're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to pivot. We all know you're going to have to do it. And the only question is when. And, the, and with every day that goes by, the certainty that if not tomorrow, next week is when the pivot's going to occur increases. And you realise there's you, you've just created this monster that will not succumb the way you want and need it to because it understands the corner you're in and is front-running you. I mean, the markets, are, you've seen this, this bounce at the start of this year. That's very much a market saying, all right, as I say, the pivot's coming sooner now. We've made it through to January 2023 without you pivoting. That just means that it's a day closer. So how do they, or do they even need to, how do they discourage that behaviour? Um, or do they eventually just have to say, all right, you win, you get what you want, here's a, here's the liquidity and markets, risk asset prices all shoot higher again? I think that all they can do is what used to be called open mouth operations, which I think has been dressed up as sort of you know forward guidance is they've just got to keep saying that they're going to keep rates higher for longer. And it may well be that that's, that's the resolution. They, they do have to keep rates 
higher for longer. But the trouble is they may end up sort of pushing the economy more into recession if they do that. But I think ultimately that's that has to be the way forward. And I think that if you look at what the Federal Reserve is is doing de facto, in my view at least, I may be you know completely wrong here. I think that what happened in September at the time of the of the British guilt debacle is there was a very or an increasingly clear separation between interest rates being used to nail inflation and the balance sheet or the effective balance sheet, the liquidity element of the balance sheet being used for financial stability reasons. And what we've seen is a pivot, I think, on the liquidity and what the Federal Reserve, I mean, our, we do uh, a lot of uh, very detailed calculations of what the central banks do, and we keep indexes of each central bank. Uh, our Fed index bottomed in October and has been rising ever since. Now, it's rising gently, but interestingly, it's tracking the identical course to what happened in 2001, 2002. So what does that portend? Because uh, obviously, we all remember 2000, 2001. But let's let's take it on a step. When, when, you, when you say we're tracking that, what came next in 2001, 2002? Well, what, what you get is that, I mean, one has to be, you know, uh, clear here that uh, that period was clearly coloured by, the, uh, by uh, the awful news of 9-11. Yes. So uh, strip that out. But if you look at uh, that, that period, effectively what you saw was uh, markets increasingly began to stabilise as 2001 unfolded. Uh, bond markets were generally decent performers. I mean, not outstanding performers, but they were decent performers through the year. Bond volatility came down from its peaks. Uh, you saw the corporate debt markets, particularly the junk markets, uh, performing extremely well. Uh, through from I think the mid the middle of 2001 uh, into 2002, equities took time to get traction, uh, and that may have been something about the depth of the recession and uh, the fact that um, you had 9/11. Uh, but e- equities didn't really take off until well into 2002. But I think that sequencing of co- the other thing, sorry to throw in, was that you also saw commodity markets picking up strongly around the yes. around the end of uh, 2001. So basically, what you what you see is a sequencing that corporate debt, commodities uh, pick up, then you get equities starting to move. And I think that's the sort of way to frame it. I mean, you know, our view for this year is that the big stock and bond markets will, generally speaking, trade sideways this year. But unlike 2022, you'll see some very strong outperformers in things like emerging markets and commodity prices um, and cyclicals uh, for the year as a whole. So does the liquidity, um, the increase in liquidity, and as you say, it's it's rising gently, and, you're, and you, you mentioned it being back to 50, which is basically neutral in terms of the long term with your index, and yet it seems that risk assets have been on fire to start the year. You know, we've seen all kinds of headlines about just how strong risk assets have been. Does this liquidity, you mentioned emerging markets there, does the increase in liquidity tend in a higher interest rate environment to go to different places than we've seen in the last several years? And if so, what does that mean for the various regions in terms of the effect liquidity will have on them? Yes, it, it also comes from different regions. And I think the, you know, if you if you look at um, probably today, the two main sources of liquidity uh, in terms of, of countries, it's the US by definition, and the other is China. I mean, China's a, uh, you know, it, it's an industrial elephant in the room, but it's increasingly a big, a bigger and bigger financial power. And China, as uh, you know, despite the fact that many, many commentators have been saying repeatedly for weeks now that the Chinese are not easing, I mean, there's no question they're easing. Uh, and we monitor the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, on a daily basis. And through December and January, what you saw was the PBOC injecting uh, three trillion yuan uh, into their financial markets, which if you scale that, that's about 450 billion US. But it it measures, put it in context, about three and a half times what they put in the previous two years in total, right? So this they're going for it, okay? Now they won't be able to keep that, uh, you know, that pace up through February. So there'll be a bit of a lull. But what you'll see is, or what you're already seeing, is the impact of that on the real economy. Now we also happen to monitor. We do a lot of now casting work on economies, and if you look at that liquidity uh, splurge from China, that liquidity splurge has led the world economy by about 
um, 40 or 50 days. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but uh, in terms of uh, looking at it as granularly as that, but actually that's the fact. So as that liquidity has gone in, what you've seen is commodity markets starting to pick up, lots of evidence of activity uh, you know, beginning to pick up again now. So, I mean, that makes us question whether uh, you're likely to get as deep a recession as many economists are saying. Now, clearly, there's a slowdown. You look at the cyclical components of the U.S. economy, and we, you know, will come quietly. There are, you know, there's clearly softness in things like housing, uh, consumer durables, etc. And the, the economy is going down. But the reality is, from a global perspective, China is so so important, and China is just basically. Uh, you know, pushed huge amounts of liquidity at their markets. Um, the dollar has come down. Those two factors together uh, are boosting the prospects of emerging markets significantly. And for the first time in a long, long time, emerging markets look worth investing in again. Yeah, I completely agree. You, know, you posted um, a, a great chart, I think today or maybe yesterday, um, which showed your liquidity index correlated with gold and Bitcoin. And the the overlay was extraordinarily close, you know, and you showed that this rally in Bitcoin and gold as liquidity had increased. And, and I've, I found that interesting, not so much from the Bitcoin point of view, because I, I understand that Bitcoin is a function of liquidity, but it seems counterintuitive in times of strongly rising liquidity that gold would catch a bit. You know, I find that interesting. And that, and that suggested to me that the kind of attitude to this has switched a little bit in that now rising liquidity is a reason to fear instability rather than the green light to just go and 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 speculate on all kinds of things. Am I misreading that, or did you, or, or, or is there another um, dimension? To well, that? Let, let let me explain what that chart is. I mean, basically, that's a chart which uh, which correlates uh, global liquidity growth uh, with um, the expansion in the value of what we call monetary hedges. Monetary hedges are basically uh, simply the market value of gold plus the market cap or market size of cryptocurrencies together. Okay, now uh, the reality is, is gold is a, still about ten times the size of uh, of the cryptocurrency market. Yeah. Um, so gold dominates. But the interesting point is that both of those are monetary hedges. Now, um, what does that really mean? What it means is that gold is not a, not an inflation hedge per se, doesn't hedge against cost inflation or necessarily high street inflation if high street inflation is dominated by costs, but it is a monetary inflation hedge. So if you devalue your paper money, the price of gold will go up by definition uh, in that paper money, of course. Now, what we're saying is that if you get a monetary expansion, a liquidity expansion, the value of those monetary hedges is going to go up. Um, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So it's moving exactly one for one. And you can argue that um, you know there, there may well be additionally um, uh, a movement, a demand for gold if the financial system breaks down, as I think you're alluding to. That's possible. But generally, uh, what we find is the correlation is close between periods of expanding liquidity and rising monetary value of monetary hedges. In other words, gold prices go up, crypto goes up, and similarly vice versa. And we said, you know, back in October when we thought that you were getting this inflection, both in terms of Fed liquidity and in terms of Chinese liquidity, that, you know, where you would see that if we were correct would be first in cryptocurrency prices and secondly in things like uh, the changing slope of the yield curve and potentially in narrowing credit spreads. And that seems to be, you know, it seems to have worked so far at least. Now, this is not a recommendation for crypto. By any means, I don't think there's much behind crypto, but I mean, that's obviously a debating point. But it clearly is a monetary phenomenon. It's a, it's a barometer of liquidity conditions. It's interesting because you know I, I've followed the gold market for for quite some time, and when I saw that chart, I was really struck by it because I think you you can't help but think that gold is a risk off asset. And generally speaking, when times are good and when there's abundant liquidity. Nobody wants gold. You know, you, you just get this sense that, that risk assets move high, equities go higher, and we've in, in the last decade, bonds have gone higher and real estate's gone higher, and gold's kind of languished. So when I looked at that chart, it didn't feel right to me. You know, it didn't feel that gold is generally viewed as a monetary hedge, which of course it is. It's, it's arguably the most simple, most perfect hedge against monetary debasement. So I was fascinated to see that, and particularly as... For the longest time, crypto 
the narrative about it being an inflation hedge was kind of put out there and kind of torched. The argument that it was uh, a good way to uh, counter monetary debasement is out there and remains, but it really became a speculative asset. It became, there are all kinds of charts that show it diverging in terms of it being a purely speculative asset. So I'm fascinated that not so much crypto should be rising. Um, and given that, the, as you say, that the percentage of that or the strength of gold's representation in that, in that two-component index is so is so large, I'm really fascinated that, that in a time of added liquidity, added speculation, that gold is performing so well. I find that that to me signals some kind of mentality change that, okay, liquidity is coming, which is great, but this may be kind of one liquidity hose too far, if you like. Well, I think I mean it may be that. I mean, why, why did um, why did crypto go up in um, you know 2020 2021? Uh, it was largely because there was so much liquidity that was thrown at the system by the central banks. I think that that's straightforward. Gold didn't really do very well through right. that period, which is always a, a bit of a head scratcher. But and that's why I thought, well, okay, maybe what's happened is there's a change in tastes. Maybe the 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 younger generations uh, are thinking that they want to preserve monetary wealth. And they're hedging, not in the gold market, but they're actually hedging in the in the crypto market, and that seemed to work. This this year, it seems to be more balanced, doesn't it? I mean, actually, people seem to be buying both gold and crypto. So I don't know. I mean, it's a puzzle, but that market value statistic seems to you know seems to catch it, and that yeah, was just yeah, a absolutely. piece of luck of looking at those th- two things together. Yeah. Well, so as we kind of wrap things up, let's talk about the outlook for liquidity through this year. I mean, we've kind of touched on it, but you know, a roadmap of sorts, if you have one, and and things that you're looking at that might change the path of this kind of liquidity reflation that you've described so beautifully earlier on in this conversation. Okay, I think the 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 first thing to say is that liquidity tends to move in clear cycles, and the evidence, and we we've got we have tracked liquidity for years. Uh, we've got data going, you know, all the way back into the 1960s. And if you look at the cycle of liquidity, it tends globally, it tends to follow a cycle of around about uh, six to seven years. That it's that sort of frequency. Okay, why? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can come up with you know, uh, you know, half a dozen different theories, and probably all wrong. I don't know, but uh, it does tend to follow that sort of cycle. And the remarkable thing is that even through this COVID. Uh, crisis. It seems to have tracked exactly, uh, you know, exactly. Uh, it may well have overshot on the upside. There's been too much, and it's come down dramatically lately. But the timing has been on cue. Where we, what we, what we're seeing right now is an inflection point in liquidity, and liquidity is bottoming. And one of the things that we said uh, late last year was that abs- our absolute conviction is that the liquidity cycle will rise through 2023. We're not sure what that means for markets necessarily. That's a different question. But certainly, we're absolutely sure the liquidity cycle is going to is going to rise, and you know it is. So I think you're getting an impetus from two areas right now. You're getting an impetus from, um, in terms of central banks at least, the Federal Reserve. I think has stopped its QT. That's a moot point, but hey, let's see. The evidence is with us so far. And the second is that China is engaging a significant QE process. On top of that, you've got basically three other factors that will uh, cause the private sector to increase liquidity. Number one, the dollar has come off its peak, and a falling dollar encourages more borrowing uh, in dollars. Second thing is that oil prices have come off their peak, and oil is a huge, huge user of liquidity uh, globally. It's very liquidity intensive. So that's the second factor. Third factor is that bond market volatility has come down and that basically encourages more activity in the repo markets. And that is another source of liquidity. So what you're getting is liquidity is building. Uh, it's building you know, in aggregate slowly, but things are beginning to turn. Uh, what could derail that? I would say uh, possibly, two, possibly two things. One is that if there is a resurgence of inflation and central banks decide they've got to go back to QT uh, and nail it, I think that's unlikely 
for the simple reason that I don't think the financial system can take it in terms of stability. So I think a lot of the reasons the Fed is moving in the way it's doing is for financial stability reasons, not because they they think they've nailed inflation yet. And I don't think they can basically tighten that much more. So I think that bit is more remote. The other case could be that you get a much deeper recession and that deeper recession destroys private sector liquidity creation. So banks basically curtail their provision, et cetera, et cetera, and corporations are not generating cash. But I think that's on that again, I think is unlikely. And the reason that I'm I'm sort of more optimistic about the economies, I'm not saying that we won't get a mild recession, is that I think the yield curve is giving exactly the wrong signal right now, or a bias signal, should I say. And the reason it's a bias signal, this is going to sound a little bit wonkish, but it comes back to understanding what term premia are. Now, a bond has two moving parts. One is interest rate expectations, and the other is uh, a premium or discount that is called the term premia. There is an extra bit that's put on to compensate investors for in future interest rate risk. Now, as you know, as a bond's term extends from one year to two years, to 10 years, uh, there is more interest rate risk embedded in the value of a bond. And therefore, the term premia has a larger and larger component as you move out uh, into longer dated tenors. And what that means is that if we take the current situation, term premia in the US are up there, are not only negative, they're, they're near their most negative reading ever in basically, what, 60, 70 years of data when the data first started. You've never been lower. And that's extraordinary. So first of all, that negative term premia is basically biasing um, long dated yields downwards. So in other words, without that negative term premia, the 10-year bond would be nearer 5% now than 3.5%. Right. Okay. Uh, and that's something to think about. So that negative term premium is causing the yield curve to be abnormally inverted. So it may be telling us more about financial instability than economic instability. And the reason you've got such a negative term premium is there's, as you noted earlier on, there is a general shortage of collateral in the system. And that's probably why it's negative. Fascinating. Michael, absolutely fascinating. And I've so enjoyed this conversation. You've left us with an awful lot to think about. But what I'd love to do before we actually close is I know you've been um, using artificial intelligence in your work recently. And I know you've dabbled with chat GPT and, and the world of liquidity. And, I, and I'd love if you wouldn't mind to share with the audience the uh, the findings of your experiments. Okay, well, that's uh, that's very kind. Yes, I did. I thought, okay, let's, um, let's ask um, uh, chat GPT, uh, you know, what, uh, what global liquidity is. And so uh, for a for a bit of fun, I typed in uh, to the machine, uh, can you describe global liquidity, but describe it uh, rather like the poet Dylan Thomas would, would do it. I've tried Shakespeare as well. But we've, actually, all, we've all had that thought. <laughs> yeah. And it reads like this. Actually, this is remarkable, I think. So it says, global liquidity flows like a river, a force of nature, wild and never to be tamed. It's power immense, a tide that shapes the world's defence. Like a storm that rages through the night, it gathers force, it gains its might. With every passing day, it grows an endless stream that always flows. It brings life to markets far and wide. It drives growth and fuels our pride. It shapes the future that we see, a rolling river, wild and free. How about that? Pretty accurate, I have to say. ChatGPT continues to amaze and astound. Well, look, before we wrap up, um, if, you, if, if you'd be good enough to let the listeners know once again how they can follow your work uh, and reach you and find out more about what you do. Because as, as I've said before, I think understanding liquidity and having access to good data on liquidity is going to become even more important than it has been um, through these next couple of years when I suspect volatility is going to increase. So let people know how they can find out more about Cross Border and yourself and, and follow all your work. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Grant. Its uh, website is crossbordercapital.com. Uh, we've got a Twitter handle, which is at crossbordercap. Uh, I wrote a book all about global liquidity uh, about three or four years ago, which is called Capital Wars, uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan. And it basically deals with um, uh, the role of the US dollar, generation of liquidity, and the coming uh, threat from China. Um, and you know we supply data and narrative on markets uh, to investors worldwide. 
we sell our data. A lot of quant funds take the data and use it in their algorithms themselves. But basically, we try to put ourselves up as being the oracle on liquidity. And we've been doing this for, well, more years than I care to remember, to be truthful. Well, you've been very successful because to me, you are the oracle of liquidity. And I, and I thank you for giving up some of your precious time to talk to me today, Michael. So uh, many thanks for that. Great, Grant. Thanks. Great pleasure. Thank you. All right. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you. Well, uh, fascinating. As I promised you, Michael is just so interesting to talk to. And this whole idea of liquidity as it ebbs and flows is something that I think most people have a, a, an understanding of. But really digging into it, it you can't help but think it holds so many keys to uh, to what's going to happen in the coming months. So I, I thank Michael for giving up an hour of his time uh, for me today. Now, uh, to reinforce where you can find out more about what Michael does, uh, crossbordercapital.com is the firm's website and their Twitter handle, which um, pumps out fantastic information in chart form, um, is at crossbordercap. So please uh, do check them out and find out more about what they do. And again, Michael's book, Capital Wars, which you can find on Amazon and all good bookstores, um, is a fabulous read. I have to say, uh, I read it several years ago when Michael published it. It was good then and it'll, it'll stand the test of time, I promise you. So thank you again. Um, it's good to be back and I'll see you again in the next few days. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.